0: Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About found families. About sad boys. About
1: fated mates. About depression. About pretty much every trope you could think of, including being saved by water creatures a la Harry Potter series.
0: <laughs> about visiting other people and stealing things from them. About mulligans. About all the people you don't need to be jealous of. About politics. About feeling seen.
1: But most of all, it's about that first thing
0: romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves.
1: This week, we are reading A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Mass. Moss. Moss. It's Mass. Mass.
0: According to Jennifer Akita. And in this household, we defer to Jennifer Akita. We really do. Six figures in a New York Times profile? Fuck yeah, we do. This is the second book in A Court of Thorn and Roses,
1: of which there are like three and a half pubbed. Are we going to do the third one? I will if you want to. Let's think about it at the end of this. I feel like these two first ones make such a nice package together. The third one for me feels a little like Attack
0: of the Clones. Oh, Wow. You and I might come to blows because the retcon of Attack of the Clones has has really worked on me. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, so now you I just feel... made me a thousand more times more interested in the third book than I was when we started this out. So what would, have you wrought, Morgan?
1: I would say it's pre-retcon, but I mean, of course I would say that because I haven't been retconned. <laughs> It's like it's like every third character is Jar Jar Banks.
0: That's insufferable.
1: <laughs> They're just like Jar Jar Banksing in like truly br- brutal surroundings. Wow. Anyways, so as always, we start with a delicious preview of the next book in the series <laughs> that we're not going to talk about. But this week, or this week, this episode, last time I read the back of the book. So, Isabel, would you read the back of the book of A Court of Mist and Fury for us?
0: <clears throat> do you want me to do the blurb?
1: Yeah, of course. Is it a good blurb? I guess I'll find out. Hit me.
0: The seductive and stunning number one New York Times bestselling sequel to Sarah J. Mass's spellbinding A Court of Thorns and Roses. Goodreads choice 2016 winner. Hmm. Feyre has undergone more trials than one human woman can carry in her heart. Though she's now been granted the powers and lifespan of the High Fae, spelled F-A-E because we reel about this world building, y'all, She is haunted by her time under the mountain and the terrible deeds she performed to save the lives of Tamlin and his people. Yeah. As her marriage to Tamlin approaches, Feyre's hollowness and nightmares consume her. She finds herself split into two different people, one who upholds her bargain with Rhysand, High Lord of the Feared Night Court, and one who lives out her life in the Spring Court with Tamlin. While Feyre navigates a dark web of politics, passion, and dazzling power, a greater evil looms. She might just be the key to stopping it, but only if she can harness her harrowing gifts, heal her fractured soul, and decide how she wishes to shape her future and the future of a world in turmoil. Bum, bum, bum.
1: I, I do need to um correct what I said earlier. Because A Court of Silver Flames, the fifth book, has been released. So now there are technically four and a half books in the series. It was released on September
0: 6th. Oh, shit. We are so on top of this. Look at us. Yeah. I'm not going to one-click it. Okay. That's where I'm at. Well, that feels like a little bit of a spoiler. I mean, the Jar Jar Binks stuff is spoiler alert. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Like, But that's, let's have this conversation, and then I'm going to see where we're at.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I will say, like, none of my opinion is reflective of my feeling. My current state of mind is not reflective of my feelings of A Court of Mist and Fury. Okay. Let's get into A Court of Mist and Fury. Where do you want to begin? I want to start with the world building, and I'd like to read you a passage that I highlighted. Okay. Um, And I just want to remind the readers like, when I started reading this, I did not think we would be discussing this. This was for mama, this was for my private time.
0: But nevertheless, I just had a, I would like to share a personal anecdote with you, my friend Morgan, but also obviously with the listeners that we have. Uh, (laughs) So, listeners, I was pregnant. I have delivered (laughs) myself of a child. And she's just started smiling. And I'm taking a 1,002 pictures of it. I sent one to my uh, beloved Aunt Jackie. And she, you know, responds as you would want your beloved Aunt Jackie to respond. She's like, oh, she's precious. And I was like, eh, she's a bit of a ham, but she doesn't know it. And my aunt responded, well, you know, they say what they say about apples and trees. And I was like, And Jackie, there has not been a goddamn moment in my entire born day that I didn't know I was a ham. (laughs) And the reason why this relates to what you just said is because even when (laughs) you have something that's just for mama, it's like "Mm, you were going to tell somebody about it and it was going to be awesome when you told us.
1: I can't keep my, I can't keep my opinions to myself.
0: Natural born ham. Some of us just are. You know, we came out with that pineapple glued to the top of our head. <laughs> uh, all right, I found my passage.
1: Okay. So this is uh, page two in in my Kindle edition. I focused on my breathing, in through my nose, out through my mouth, over and over. When it seemed like I was done heaving, I eased from the toilet. <laughs> what toilet (laughs) this is a world with indoor
0: plumbing and (laughs) this is a world with indoor plumbing and you didn't know that until the second book
1: no idea (laughs) not just like indoor plumbing but like a toilet Mm -hmm. like something that you could like rest your head on
0: after you threw up into it
1: yeah what did you think this world looked like
0: when you finished reading book one? Oh, Jesus Christ. You know what I thought? I thought it looked a lot like, I don't know, Westeros or like Middle yeah. Earth or like places that don't have indoor plums. with fl- Yeah. Like I was imagining, I think maybe something like a Roman indoor bathroom system right where like it's kind of an open porcelain pit and like water is definitely taking it somewhere but the term toilet is way too modern for leather there's the term toilet incorrect not should not have been used yeah i was for sure picturing a renaissance fair yeah i mean like a roman renaissance fair though like i imagine that the fae but also they're fucking magical so like they had like like you can shit on the floor and it would disappear like what the fuck
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Why do they have toilets? They don't need them. The toilet feels like the first assault (laughs) of the second (laughs) (laughs) text. And I love how it's like in there and like she's in the spring court where we spent a great deal of our time in the last book Mm -hmm. picturing a Westerosi, like a Renaissance fair where it's not really anything. It's like a fantasy world, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then it just says toilet, like they've always been there. Like we should have known about the toilets already.
0: This is, I think, I love that you call it the first assault, but like this is also, I think, like the first arrow out of the quiver for me that was like, oh, I deeply understand why the second book helped the confusion of this series as YA. Because something like that feels like derivative, lazy, But also scaffolding world building for younger folks. Interesting.
1: The way we perceived the world in the first book, or to be honest, the way the world was presented to us in the first book was like a little immature.
0: It wasn't, it was vague enough that it could have been either. Right. Like I understood why people were like, oh, it's not YA, it has this smut, it's also incredibly violent. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right, I see that. I see my mistake, I see how it was marketed, I understand why I thought it was YA, I understand why it's not. But when on page two you have someone hugging the porcelain throne literally, I'm like, "Mm, no. You literally have people turning into lion-horned demons And you've just had an entire book where there's 50 years of people wearing masks and you only have toilets. Like what, (laughs) what a failure of imagination, which to me feels like a very specific kind of world building for, you know, young adults who ask questions like, how do they poop? I don't think, once you're past an adult stage, you just don't ask that question anymore. You're just like, they do. I don't need to know how they do it. So you think she's addressing her, or the text is addressing
1: young readers and saying, I know what you're thinking. They poop the way we do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it's weird to say toilet, like, because she could have thrown, because it's also vomiting, you know, it's not even pooping.
0: No, it's puking. So it's like also a scene out of like a teen movie where someone is like that entire scene where you're jumping out of bed and there's still someone in bed and like you're in the bleary light of an early morning hugging the porcelain throne. You can
1: puke into a bowl. You can puke out a window. Like it's hard
0: to poop out of a window. It's not hard to puke out of a window. That's true. Also, like, why the fuck? Like, you know, someone dresses her every day. Why doesn't she have one of those like washstands and like one of those like Jane Austen basins? You know the the thing that goes under the bed. What are those called? Chamber pot. Chamber pot. Yeah. And like,
1: this is what blows my mind. When she was writing the first book, was she picturing a world with toilets, or is this a new choice?
0: This is a new choice. She definitely didn't picture the first world with them.
1: And by, and like, I don't mean like toilets literally. I mean toilets just for the listeners. I mean toilets as like a symbol of the larger like context that we're in.
0: Yeah, because she also invents magical texting, which to be fair, I found less offensive (gasps) than toilets. It is definitely (laughs) in the same space. Yes, but
1: that's the thing, right? We have, like, okay, so the magical texting is, like, writing, like, words appear on a scroll. The toilet is just a toilet. Yeah, dude. It's a one-to-one thing. Like, there's nothing, like, it It doesn't even say old with an E <laughs> at the end in front of it. She doesn't... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who does she think we are? She went to all the trouble of explaining She'd- that it's Fae, F-A-E, and she spelled toilets like this? She e. would not even call it a water closet?
1: Yeah, in just the regular way. It was like, yeah, it's Fae. Like, this isn't a book for babies. We also have <laughs> toilets.
0: <laughs> Grow up. Listen, I'm not going to fight you on this. The world building was like, I think lazy is the nicest way I can describe it.
1: Wow, you feel like it was lazy.
0: The world building in the first one was so good, was so smart. And I think part of why it was so smart is because it was vague. And it was vague enough that you could just see stuff, right? Like I could just put myself in leathers and be in a Renaissance winter. And I could go to the spring court, and there's marble everywhere and a bunch of people wearing masks. Okay, the torches light themselves. I know where I am. I don't fucking need this whole bullshit about fucking toilets or magical scrolls that are like, he, 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 he's texting me late at night. I don't fucking need that shit. Because it also... Or how about a fucking townhouse? <laughs> a townhouse for fuck's
1: sake. And like an artsy downtown area. <laughs> a restaurant.
0: Lots of restaurants. We were transported from a place that felt like renaissance to what felt immediately to me like... A a direct rip of Howl's Moving Castle. I was like, Christian Bale's voice is going to show up any minute.
1: It's very Howl's Moving Castle. But, peep this, okay? This is where our job gets hard. The job of a critic isn't always easy. Okay. So, we don't like the toilet. We hate it.
0: We hates it, Precious.
1: Listen, we we hates the toilet. We don't care for it, all right? But... Does that actually mean the toilet's bad? Because you pointed out world building in the first book, very good. Very good. And in fact, SJM is is a little bit famous for being good at world building. So I'm reminded of when I was in this film class and someone accused a, uh, it's a wonderful life. And I can't remember the moment, but a student pointed out like a undergrad pointed out like a quick cut and was like, it's an editing mistake. And our professor is like, you have to accept that the person who made this movie is good at making movies. (laughs) So with that perspective, try and think of why there would be a quick cut and don't think of it as a mistake, right? So if the toilet isn't a mistake, it's
0: lazy. If the toilet is a rebu- to me, that makes the toilet feel like a rebuke. A rebuke. Can you explain that further? I
1: feel like- She's saying, you thought this story was one thing. This story is, in fact, something entirely different. And that does go on to be borne out throughout the text, I think.
0: I agree. I think you are giving a lot of credit to...
1: And that's why I say the toilet is the first assault. (laughs)
0: I think that's too much credit, though. And I think, like, what's really clear to me about what was so great about the first one is that the world building and the character building are, they're in step. They are, they're hand in glove. They, they, they feed each other in ways that I think are really important and really beautiful and really smart. And here, the world building takes the third row jumper seat in your weird party aunt station wagon to the character development, it's like *House Moving Castle*. It's like it, I it it was like watching a bunch of movies that I enjoy all smushed together in one place, just so that I could see two characters that I wanted to hang out with talk, yeah, or bone or fight or whatever. And like that's fine because I wanted to be with those characters, but like it's very clear to me that the world building was not constitutive of the new the the characters we were with in this place as it was in the last book.
1: I think that's a good point. I think that there is something about like Farah's coming to terms with who she's changed into but part of that is accepting that she's really just being who she always was and like Reese is you know a person with a great amount of depth and confusion and is incredibly capable and yet utterly incapable is like rendered incapable by how capable he is and then like a third voice whispers and they use a toilet
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly that's exactly the feeling and they have magical text
1: yeah and also like do fairies need- why would a fairy poop
0: such a good question
1: like i know that they eat but i feel like they would have like some kind of like i
0: feel <laughs> yeah. like they burn clean listen <laughs> they like fucking have telepathy wings and unimaginably long lifespans or are actually immortal at like at what point does that like whatever it doesn't make a difference why the fuck would they poop why the and like why the fuck like I get puking I guess because like whatever I Morgan it's lazy I'm (laughs) just
1: let's see let's see okay well we're still, I
0: call him like I see him.
1: The thing is, is like this world building, and in fact this like world unbuilding, this like, or world changing, right? It's weird because there's a toilet, but we're still in the spring court that we know. We still have these like, what feels like a medieval referential fantasy, like politic happening and magic happening and F.A.E. fairies, right? I feel like that is a a cornerstone of like what the second book is doing so we talked about in the first book how that text is in conversation with all these other texts i think the second book is where it's like and now i'm ready to make
0: a point i i will say this for the world building in terms of fantasy versus romance for a high fantasy it's lazy um, although the creatures remain A+. plus, Like, the description of the Sorial is really good. The description of the weaponry mm. and how terrifying it is is really good. The description of the wings and how they function and how they feel. I, this is an incredibly tactile book. But those are all hallmarks of romance, yeah. not necessarily high fantasy. Like, high fantasy is... R- I would say... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I think we're
1: about to make each other's point. Go ahead.
0: That high fantasy is really interested in both politics, but also place. This book is not as interested in place as it is interested in politics.
1: Yes, that's exactly what that... No lie, that's exactly what I was about to say.
0: (laughs) glad that we've had the same reading experience
1: not not exactly like that but that was it was it was much better
0: because like honestly once I got over the fucking toilet and like the other because there's so many stupid things like that that just seem to happen inside of a world that is actually very complicated and interesting that I like I felt short-changed but then I got into the character development and I didn't feel short-changed anymore and then it's like <sighs> mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with that
1: so, so yeah. So I think this theme of like the world build because there are a couple times when I actually like the world building.
0: Same Zs,
1: But I think it's because I like the city of Santa Fe, New Mexico.
0: Yeah. And I like Howl's Moving Castle. And yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, but let's get to that. Let's talk about how do we, how do we
0: get to Santa Fe?
1: Do you know the way to Santa Fe?
0: la, <laughs> la, 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 la. Great question. I think the way that we, I want to get there, if it's okay with you is through class.
1: Okay, let's actually, are we going to start with the beginning of the book?
0: We're going to start with the beginning of the book and our conversation from last time where I was like, it's really weird that in the spring court, this curse that they've all had also denotes class, right? Like that was a sticking point for both of us.
1: I am so glad, yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about where we find ourselves In the beginning of the book, Feyre's vomiting because she's got PTSD more so than she ever had before.
0: Because she murdered two innocent people.
1: Mm -hmm. And she is now engaged to Tamlin. Yep.
0: He proposed to her in a field of wildflowers. Very romantic. Very chaste.
1: Yeah. Very romance novel. I remember being so mad that um, a proposal in a field of wildflowers happened off page in the first ever book we read. Uh Uh-huh. Is Sarah J. Moss a Womans listener and wanting to punish us?
0: I also had that question. I like, I literally wrote it down. I like, did she hear our episode in twenty fifteen and then wrote this one to answer some of our questions? <laughs> Is Sarah J. Moss a time traveler and does she listen to Womans?
1: I think, he, he, yeah. I, she was like, "It's." She was like, "I'm throwing out all my other." <laughs> all my other outlines my next book will be a rebuke of womance's critique
0: of tessa dares a week to be wicked i'm not gonna kill baby hitler but i am going to fix (laughs) womance
1: but i am going to fix no so she has this beautiful right but i think it's important that like all of these moments of tenderness are now happening off page yes
0: and the moments of tension and the moments of breakage are happening on page. So one of the moments of breakage that I thought was actually quite smart and goes it goes into this character development thing is Feyre is puking and because she's having these terrible nightmares from her PTSD, PTSD, and Tamlin, who we know has preternatural senses, always pretends to be asleep and. At first, she's like, I don't know why he does that. You know, I know he can hear me. And like, maybe he is asleep. Maybe he doesn't care about me. But then the other part is like, maybe he's protecting me and like giving me privacy and like letting me work through this on my own. Right. And it is into the absence of Tamlin's action that Feyre is forced to come up with a series of solutions and or rationales. And I thought that was really smart. I thought that was a really great way of using the first person narrative to highlight a breakage, right? Because they're not talking to each other, which just gives favor all of this leash to just hang their relationship with.
1: Yeah. Like all of this leash to like hang their relationship with, but she's trying to justify it.
0: Yes, desperately.
1: And it's kind and it's kind of like You know, the idea that, like, at the end of a romance novel, what happens after the happily ever after? And I think a lot of us who are in heterosexual relationships fill a vacuum of reassurance and affection and the kind of love we need with narrativizing. Like, we've talked about this quite frequently on the show. This feels like an instance where it's not us reading into it. (laughs) Like, it is on the page. Like, that is what the main character is doing.
0: Yes. And unlike Lizzie Bennet, who assumes the worst in Darcy in his silences, Mm -hmm. Feyre is trying so hard to justify Tamlin. It's like it is actually hard to read at points. And I think it's hard to read at points because it is so desperate and it's so tough. And suddenly the Tamlin that we liked and the Tamlin that, you know, we really enjoyed and was so handsome and so kind and so like whatever from the first book is revealed to be this very cruel and distant person And I thought that was also a really good way of describing like how a shared trauma doesn't necessarily bring people together, like that it can really separate you. And that's what happens to Tamlin and Feyre.
1: Yeah. And it's like, is he deprecating or is he deprecated? Ladies. (laughs) And like, I think the thesis of Tamlin in the beginning of this book is it's not that deep. She discovers that, like, his reasons for preventing her from seeking meaning in her life in the way she wants to. Because she wants to, like, go to the village and, like, help people rebuild. hmm We have this new character who's, like, a priestess. Mm-hmm. Alanthe. Because I guess they have religion in this world in addition to toilets. <laughs> like, all the greatest hits have now shown up. So... She has kind of, she's sort of taken on this advisor role. She's climbed to the top very quickly. She has started to say stuff that we heard a lot around the Meghan Markle um, departure from the royal family, which is like, you have to put your, like, what the people need is a queen. They want a wedding. They don't want to see you, like, toiling. Um, They want to see you wearing pretty dresses. And this is, you know... Not seen as, like, a form of oppression, although she feels oppressed. She refuses to see it as oppression. hmm
0: I think that is such exactly the right place to put that, right? Because, like... Watching Feyre fight so hard not to name it oppression, even as she's feeling cloistered and hemmed in and, like, more and more traumatized by what's happening. Like, it is so painful to hear her justification so that when there's finally a break, we're all fucking relieved.
1: So we get to that break because, if you'll recall from the previous book and maybe our episode. I hope we talked about it. She has entered a pact with one recent 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 where she has to spend like one week every month in his palace. Yep. And it seems like he's not going to she's not going to have to pay the piper
0: because he leaves her alone for 3 months while well, she's wedding planning
1: up until she's walking down that aisle. Oh yeah. And then like the opening of purple rain. A mist fills the void, and behold, a prince.
0: <laughs> but the important thing is that while she's walking down the aisle, while we're listening to that beautiful Pachabelle's canon, because it's obviously what she's walking down the aisle to, because they have toilets, so she's not going to walk down to anything else.
1: Toilets, religion, children's
0: choirs. <laughs> She is saying in an internal monologue, Please, someone, help me. Please, someone, help me. Please, someone, help me. And they have this magical bond through her like arm tattoo. And just as she is saying this thing where she's stopped, where she's not, she can't go through with it. She can't marry Tamlin. Suddenly, to spare her the humiliation and embarrassment of this moment, in walks in the Night Prince, darkness himself. The bad guy, the Rochester, and he whisks her away to the night court.
1: Which is, <laughs> I cannot believe the book actually called it the night court. I know, right? And I was like reading it repeatedly. I was like, could they not have gone with like midnight?
0: The midnight court would have been Could they
1: night. not have gone with evening? <laughs> <laughs> the evening court. like Night court. Night court. Night court. TNT, we know drama, (laughs) which I think you can also say for this book. True story. So she goes to like this mysterious castle in the sky and she gets like new clothes and it seems like she's the only one there, which reminded me very much of the early, early days in the spring court. Mm -hmm. But she does hear one feminine voice kind of chiding Reese saying that went well when she's like really upset but she's you know repeatedly whisked off and she to pass her time is learning to read at rice insistence and he's helping her learn how to read
0: check mark one for the rochester (laughs) yeah he's he's teaching her to read and she says are you doing this to torture me because you know how humiliating it is and he's like no i just think you're gonna need to read as like the queen of the spring court people are going to be putting things in front of you and if you can't read them that means somebody else is going to be reading them to you and maybe they won't read them in its full truth yeah and so we're suddenly given this outsider's perspective of the spring court we're suddenly given an outsider's perspective of her relationship with Tamlin yeah and importantly Feyre was given that perspective because Tamlin was really really cutting off her circle. Yeah. And in ways that are hallmarks of abuse. I almost texted you and I was like, oh, man, so he's become an Edward and now that she's a Bella, that, like, you know, recent is going to be a Jacob? Okay. That's, well,
1: recent isn't... Well, I don't know. Maybe recent is the Jacob. I mean, he is, right? Like, that's... Like, this is so tropey, but it's also, like, taking the hero... From the first book and making him the bad boyfriend. The villain. Yeah, in the second book, which feels like very, it feels like an intentional commentary. Like this book, this series feels very meta in terms of romance commentary to me, as we talked about. And I think like that really comes to bear in this second text.
0: I agree because the thing about Tamlin that we talked about in, the last episode is that he's a Darcy. He's incredibly chaste and like a good hashtag good Duke. Yeah. And that recent functions as a Rochester, but in the reading with the way that Tamlin acts and like constantly isolating her and disempowering her and like really doing these things. It's what would happen to Darcy if he doesn't get better. He becomes the offstage Rochester, right? He becomes the Rochester that had the capacity and the desire to lock up Bertha.
1: Yeah, the pre burn Rochester. Not
0: even the pre burn the pre-Jane Rochester.
1: Yeah, she is his Bertha.
0: Yeah, and it was an insane feeling, like this entire meta commentary that you're saying is like, it was an insane feeling to think about like, what would Darcy have been like if he didn't get better? If he didn't have Lizzie being like, you're an asshole and a prick. And he's like, huh, I'm going to think on that. Yeah. I am. I need to fix myself. And, like, he would have become a Rochester, someone who doesn't question their own motives, someone who believes righteously and thoroughly that they can harm others for their quote-unquote good. And the ability of this author to do that to Tamlin in basically the first act is amazing. Well, and the other
1: thing, like, and I feel like it's so much more personal than that. It's not just, like, holding up Tamlin as, like, an object, like, a representation of these, like, objects of critique right the rochester the darcy whatever but it's also this way of like we as readers who enjoyed tamlin Mm -hmm. i am raising my hand Mm -hmm. guilty saw him in under the mountain not taking action unless it was to smooch her yep and we made
0: excuses for it we did we absolutely did. I was like, he can't do anything because then it- Amarantha will know. The book never said it.
1: <laughs> the book never said, I said that. But like we did. Yeah, I said that to myself. And now I have to watch Feyre's dumbass do it. And I'm like, oh shit, that was stupid.
0: Yeah, oh fuck, you're right. Recent was doing stuff all the time.
1: All the while, every time, every time I read a fuck. Beauty and the Beast retelling... I fucking love it. I know. And I want the beast. Yes. And I think he's great. And I'm like, he's rede- he's redeemed yep. by my love <laughs> and my love alone. <laughs> and I, you know, and I want to get swept up in the silk ribbons that spin everyone out of being, you know, a bad version, a literalized version of their job. <laughs> And into being like a whole person, but a whole person who still gleefully (laughs) works for me. (laughs) Like, I want that. But every time, every time I fall for it, I know what's wrong with it. I know what's wrong with the beast myth. Like, I know it's holding someone hostage against their will, you know? Like, I know he's just, he does an unforgivable bad, right? He's Rochester. I know it. I know it. And yet every time... I'm swept up in its clutches. And so this, like, early pivoting from, you know, this really classic hero archetype represented by Tamlin into the cupcake versus tattoo <laughs> artist. Yeah. We have toilets now. Recent. Did I feel personally attacked? Yes.
0: Did I like it? Yes. Not only did I feel personally attacked, I... Was forced to confront the fact that romance is so good at making me do the rationalizations. And one of the things is like, it's what's great about this characterization, what's great about the beast is a beast. And even though he's extremely beautiful, and even though we can rationalize his sins, they are sins and we know them for a fact. Recent is also a beast. He's just of a very different flavor and his flavor is not as pretty and it comes with like broken morals as the world understands them. But then we understand them as not broken morals like his loyalty is even deeper than Tamlin's I would argue and his you know family we choose that he has built is important and the big difference is that he understands himself as monstrous and Tamlin understands himself as heroic
1: right to your point about how romance re- we as romance readers do the rationalization for the book so much of the time that's one of like the pitfalls of like reading for pleasure is kind of, I think, the central thesis of romance, more so than a happily ever after is like, I am reading this for pleasure. I accept that I'm reading this for pleasure. I am seeking out this experience so that I may be delighted to the point where I will do work towards my own delight that the book isn't doing for me. And that is an inherently political project. Like, what you justify to yourself is very political. Not just in your reading, but, like, I would argue in your personal life, you know? <laughs> and it is, an, it is an inherently political exercise, but it's not inherently the positive one you think it is. Definitely. Like, you can uh, convince yourself of your own pleasure into your own prison. As we see our main character, Feyre, do in the first, you know, six chapters or so. And that's why, I mean, I I really believe that this series, two people in the know of the genre, feels very much like a direct critique
0: of romance while still being a romance. I mean, it follows all the romance tropes, but what it does is that it, the HEA... Right. And you said this in our last episode where it's like, I don't know how Feyre comes back from this. She's murdered two innocent people in front of like a horde of people under the mountain. And it's like, you don't, right? And I think that's one of the things about like in every romance, the guarantee is you absolutely get your HEA. It doesn't matter what terrible things you've done. Oh, you raped and kidnapped your best friend's lover. Cool. You're all right. And it's like, actually, no, you're not. And the fact that this book takes that seriously, was both very refreshing and also very revealing.
1: Yes, very refreshing and very revealing. But I think like it has to have like a totally different world than what we were expecting. And I think that's why I think the toilet is so shattering because it's meant to be shattering. You did a lot of mental gymnastics in the last book. Maybe not only with assuming that there would be no toilets. (laughs)
0: think you are giving so much credit to that. Do you know who else is a toilet? Tamlin. <laughs> Do you know who else knows it? Lucian. You thought he was a good friend, but he's not. He's, he's got his
1: suspicions. Well, I think good friends um, know when friends are
0: being bad. Yeah, but the fact that Lucian is only a good friend to Tamlin and not a good friend to Feyre was also part of the betrayal.
1: Yeah. He's also just like, you know, there comes a point and it's the point Lucian reaches in this book. Where being a good friend means being a bad person, yes, I think that like really helps to like prop up like what we come to understand of reasons, like gray morality Mm-hmm. is that he is flexible
0: incredibly so,
1: and this inflexibility is actually what makes you rotten. Do you know it's a really inflexible genre, romance?
0: Oh, fucking burn <laughs> you just you're gonna get us in so much trouble on Twitter.
1: No. No, leave us alone. I don't know.
0: No, but I think you're right. I think like this that's one of the things that's so revealing about this text. Obviously we do spoilers on this, but and those of you who've read the first book, when uh Reesand and Feyre have their final conversation on the mountain, that the under the mountain kingdom is on top of. He has this very startled reaction to her during their conversation. She's like, what's that about? And those of you who are well-versed in romance would have recognized that and you're like, oh, he's just been faded mated
1: I didn't recognize it. I recognized (laughs) the faded mate reference whenever Tamlin almost bit her neck and they were like sniffing each other, Feyre and Tamlin. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, this book's making a fated-mates reference. I didn't pick up the second one with recent. But yeah, it's like, it's it's literally a fated mate situation. It's not a reference.
0: Right. It's a fated mate situation. He knows before Feyre, which is cool. I'm fine with that. But the secret that he keeps from her is upsetting to her. Fine. Also fine with that. But the thing that got me about it is that Feyre expresses relief that they're faded mates because that will save her from the humiliation and the final conflict that she must have with Tamlin about why she can't marry him or return to the Spring Court, and I too was relieved.
1: I know, and I'm like, thank you for giving me this out. Fucking known as faded matesism, which damn it, faded mates is
0: an out. Faded Mates isn't out, right? Because, like, her whole thing with Tamlin was real and true, but obviously has to be, like, undone and shattered by the faded Mates. And it doesn't, it doesn't make what she had with Tamlin any less true. She's just bound by a higher power. And boy, how fucking convenient. How fucking relieving. And I felt that way as a reader. And having Feyre tell me that, and I was like, wait a second. God damn it. There's
1: something about that like part of me is like well the book has set me up to feel critical about my feelings Mm -hmm. that I share with Feyre but I'm not sure if I'm supposed to feel critical about that feeling.
0: I decided to feel critical of that feeling because it denied me what I thought would be like a big important empowered showdown about what it means about what consent means which this book seemed to have been working on a lot where it's like When someone says no in various contexts, like, you have to accept it. Tamlin doesn't accept it. Therefore, Tamlin equals bad.
1: I think we do need to talk about the context of what happens. So not only does Risen start collecting her once a month for one week, she starts to look forward to it. And it's sort of the difference between, like, forced stasis and chosen stasis. Mm -hmm. Like, she's able to kind of, she doesn't do much when she's in night court. Which is incredible, given how hard they work um, with their various hearings and such. But there's absolutely no actual litigation. (laughs) This is not like the TNT. Uh, You guys don't need me to tell you. Just because they have toilets doesn't mean they're wearing loosened neckties. It's true.
0: They're not working that hard.
1: And polyester suits, right? The Palace of Wind, no, that's not, has not come in. She's in a Palace of Stars. And she's learning to read, and she's...
0: She's in the Palace of Dreams.
1: Palace of Dreams, that's what it's called, because the Palace of Nightmares is under the mountain that she's on top of. So she's in the Palace of Dreams, and she's learning to read, and she's taking baths, and she's wearing cool, different clothes. And then she's returned to Tamlin, and she's in, like, a forced state of not doing anything and she's like putting off the wedding because of what happened um she's able to tell him like hey I'm not ready but every time she goes away it ratchets up the intensity with of Tamlin's jealousy and I I don't know if it's even jealousy so much as like a feeling of not being in control in general which I mean is what jealousy is but like it's clear that Tamlin is is showing like the the worst parts of being like a duke, right? We thought of him as a good duke in the last book, but like a duke is a duke. And so he eventually lashes out at her violently and she has a breakdown and is fetched by a character from Reeson's found family who she's already met called the Morrigan. Mm-hmm who is a woman who like fought in the elf human wars on the human side and is like legendary and um, is also Reese's cousin and his best friend and she takes her back to the court of dreams and offer Feyre the opportunity to like stay there indefinitely understanding that there will be consequences because now they're like officially officially stealing Tamlin's wife. And then guess what? Reese Recent- and And her fall in love.
0: Yeah, and it's actually quite a slow burn because this book is a fucking doorstop.
1: It is the same thickness as Lonesome Dove.
0: (laughs) And you know what? She does get away with it. Because, like, how do you take an enemies to lovers and then turn it into a slow burn and then turn it into a friends to lovers and then turn it into a fated mates? You gotta take the page space to do it. You got to. You got to, because like, you know, she's mad that he's teaching her to read and she's like, I hate you, and they say mean things to each other, and we all know that reason really likes her, and then like and then they become friends because he rescues her from this wedding, and like and then she's rescued from the scene of violence and then we find out that his court is actually great and that she's paid a wage and suddenly we have wages which i didn't know was a part of this thing and like, we
1: have fire pits isabeau like you have
0: in your backyard. it's true we do um but the wages are then in contrast to the agrarian dictatorship of the spring court that has a <laughs> yeah. twice yearly tithe yes so class comes in again to highlight that recent is an egalitarian, and that Tamlin hashtag bad duke is not; he is a dictator,
1: and he has the option to not do it. And, and in fact, like every you find out that like all the other courts kind of exist on a spectrum between Tamlin and recent, but Tamlin chooses to be that old fashioned in spite of need. I remind you having indoor plumbing
0: thank you for reminding me
1: he has toilets and a twice yearly tithe it's another reason why the toilet is in fact very good (laughs) world building because it shakes us out of our tamlin stupor it does really tells us like look at how backwards
0: ass his world is that is you 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 are forcing me to come around on the toilet and i don't (laughs) like it but i'm i'm feeling the pull like you're you're very (laughs) persuasive morgan
1: I speak for the toilets.
0: You really do. Um, because it is <laughs> fucked up and it is old fashioned and favor really doesn't like it. And one of I think the important plot points and one of the pieces of world building that I thought was really great is that this water I want to say wraith, yeah. but now I don't know if that's it raith. is Wraith. Okay. okay. This water wraith doesn't have the tithe because listen Amarantha fucked up all the courts and she just made the land barren and cold and this poor water wraith didn't have anything for the tithe and Tamlin's really mean and he's like if you don't have anything I'm just gonna like I'm gonna pinch you further and suddenly we need like a Robin Hood situation and Feyre strips off her earrings and her bracelets and she gives it to the wraith and she's like I remember what it was like to be hungry and I don't want that for you. And then, of course, that comes back later, and the Wraiths are like, my sister's debt is paid after they save yeah. uh, Feyre from drowning. And there's this very insane conversation about giving people the resources that they need to thrive that only Reason is having. He pays people a wage. He's interested in having egalitarian stuff at his court. He's constantly in conversation. It seems like his place might be a pseudo-democracy. They all make decisions together. The people in his court are allowed to disagree with him, and it's not violent, unlike Tamlin's springtime court. This book is having a a very modern conversation with me (laughs) about wage resources.
1: Not only that, but, like, as she's giving, I went back to the passage because I remembered there was something else there that felt like a commentary on, like, addiction or something. But Mm -hmm. it's way more about class and, like, how we frame addiction in terms of class, where she's reflecting on the fact that once Tamlin had explained that wraiths have, like, a bottomless hunger. Yes, And that if they ran out of fish to eat, right, and like their tithe is supposed to be in fish, but they've eaten all their fish. And so the implication being like the water wraiths will engage in cannibalism if they run out of fish. Mm -hmm. And instead of seeing that as like, let them eat themselves and die, she asks her when she makes, when she draws that line in her head and recalls that story, which whether or not it's true is beside the point when she's... Create, when she remembers that narrative, she decides to give that person gold to make up for how much they owe in the tithe, right, to, to like instead of letting them eat each other saving them from eating each other
0: right because like how awful is it to say like because obviously Tamlin is a very Reaganomics like trickle down like well they did it to themselves and she's like "Mm, yeah nobody deserves to be so hungry that they'd eat each other so like why don't we just give them the thing that we need since I have so much exactly which is great you know treating the water wraith like an actual Creature of agency and, like, depth.
1: Well, treating the water wraith like a person, even if their, like, existence might be different from yours. Right. She's also critical of, like, I think Tamlin gives her that story expecting her to come to the same conclusion as him. And she doesn't. And that's showing that there are other ways of thinking within this world.
0: Yes. And I think what is so good about that, because that felt like a very modern commentary on the ways in which social policy, especially in the United States, operates, it was having a formerly beloved character say something cruel, but also with a tinge of what feels like reasonableness on its face.
1: Yeah. Yes. And empathy,
0: right? And then you have Feyre being like, I have so much, though, and I don't even want it. Like, maybe they shouldn't eat each other. And Tam was like, you undercut my authority. And it's like, that person was starving. But also, like, there's the real reason, right? Yes.
1: It's not actually about what's right and what's wrong. It's about power.
0: Which makes this book so smart. I... Which is why the toilet felt like the first assault, but, like, in the way of being lazy. But now, but now, Morgan... Maybe I am coming around to your thinking,
1: you know, and well, and I think we also have to consider the fact that Feyre and this is going to come, this comes in big capital bold letters at the end of the book. Feyre was once human and existed in a very much like a medieval world. Maybe they had toilets. She didn't. But they, they also had like market day and had sex in barns full of hay not that that's something you can't do in this day and age, but <laughs> that, like it was very bucolic. Her assumptions about the world she entered into being some kind of a peak and realizing like, oh no, you can actually think like far more expansively about existence. And you as a reader are also kind of confronted with that. Because you're fucking forced to identify with her so much. Everything relentlessly... First-person perspective. And it'll it's in the third book as well. Now, I understand the 3.5 and 4, or 4 and 5, depending on how you think about it, are in other people's perspectives.
0: Good. I'm glad that somebody figured that out, that, that we needed someone else. But, like, the thing about Feyre that I think, because lis- long-time listeners and Morgan, you know, that I really don't like the first-person narrative, but I think what's so relevatory about Feyre's unrelenting... Self discovery through her own trauma and like the way out of her depression. Here it does feel like a third person narration wouldn't have been able to do it with the same kind of punch because her lows are so low and her highs are so high. And I don't think you would have been able to, yeah, it does work for me in the first two books. Having not read the third, I can't speak to it. I mean, I'm annoyed because I'm annoyed in general by first person narratives. Um, but I find that it functions the way I feel like it's intended to, um, because it keeps me in the dark when I need to be in the dark, and then it's like I feel the revelations when they happen. Where a third per like a third person narration, it would be harder to be relevatory. but it also creates the problem of exposition dump, because like people are just constantly lecturing Feyre about how the Night Court works, and I'm just like,
1: Pfft. yeah first of all guys it's actually two <laughs> there's the Santa Fe New Mexico one and then the one that's basically the city under the mountain that he allows to kind of operate autonomously which like with all of their like proclivities or whatever um but also allows him to like express himself he and Farah to express himself sexually before they're kind of either of them are actually ready to do that I think Is that in the second book?
0: Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) In his throne room? Thank God.
0: Okay, so, like, let's actually talk about the sex, if you don't mind.
1: Dare we... Should we we find our way into the sex by first finding our way into our sexiest parts? Sure. (laughs) Okay, you go first. Okay. Does your sexiest part actually work well with the point you're trying to make?
0: It does. Okay, good. Okay. Because my sexiest part... Is and you know, anybody who's been following along should get the sense that like Tamlin's gonna deliver on time, always, whatever. It's like very vanilla. Recent is gonna do something different, right? Because he's our Rochester, he's our tattooed bad boy, but maybe he's not. <laughs> happenstance, 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 they have to go to this inn after they've been like dancing around each other for quite some time. And they've been edging each other, both emotionally and physically. Morgan was referring to a space where, like, recent is, like, literally almost going to finger bang her in front of an entire orgy at the night court under the mountain. The Court of Nightmares. But he doesn't, and she doesn't get off. She just, like, feels totally buzzed. That's not my sexiest part my sexiest part because I'm lame is this in that they go to and she's finally come to the conclusion that she's not going to feel guilty about the fact that she desires recent whatever that means for her betrayal or traitorousness to Tamlin she's like Doesn't know that they're faded mates yet. And she's like, I just want to have some fun. I just want this guy's body. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be like that farmer. But you know what? Y'all caught feels. And I know that. And like, you're lying to yourself. And that's fine. And so she turns to him when they're in bed together. And he already has a boner. And they're like, touching themselves but like not and it's like very hot and she turns to him and she's like this is just gonna be for fun and he's like okay you know whatever you want whatever it's cool and then they just have this amazing sex scene where he's like fingering her and like all over her boobs and they're just like they're just spooning and then she's like all right let's have sex like you know like she turns around to like truly face him and he's like no that was just for you and I want to, like, have sex with you in a place that isn't a room at an inn with a creaky bed, and I want to fuck you against the wall, and I want to fuck you for days, and, like, it'll be different. But, like, this one, this was just for you. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm dead. (laughs) So what do you you think
1: that says about the sex in this book generally?
0: That it's, like, so... Tender and so feeling and so tactile and so deep in it inside of itself is like yeah. sex means something really, really specific for the characters. Mm-hmm. But what's crazy about this book, Morgan, okay, is that this book has a of sex like people are having sex all the time people are naked there are a ton of nipples they're like dongs hanging out everywhere there's also a lot of allusions to sexual violence in this book that was sort of absent from the first
1: also a lot of tender wing touching
0: so and breathing in ears um and and so the the this book operates almost on a spectrum of sex that i find that we've talked about before on this podcast that feels like a very modern iteration of sex where it's like, yeah, this book is saturated with sex, but the tenderest, sexiest, most intimate parts almost don't have anything to do with sex. Like there's so, it's like, it's like a Marvel movie where everyone looks perfect and it's chaste, and terrible violence happens. <laughs> it's... Except it's it's not that chase. It's not Marvel movie chase. It's not Marvel movie chase, but it has that kind it, of like
1: it has like a slow burn, like a real burn to it. There's like real heat behind it. A
0: real heat behind it, but it's like it takes so long to be actualized and the sex scenes are comparatively short to the scenes of what to the scenes of sex. If I can make that difference, like the sex scenes between the characters who are having sex that we care about, those are sex scenes versus scenes of sex where like people are just having orgies and like grinding up on each other. Like, there's so much more of that than there is of someone edge lording Feyre. That it was it was remarkable to me.
1: I think this distinction about how this book thinks about sex in a really modern way is so like ding, ding, ding for me, because I think in the previous book, right, they fall in love, and then they kiss, and then they have sex, which is a very kind of classical romance idea, but so is a Beauty and the Beast retelling, right? That's a very classical romance novel structure. Whereas here, as you pointed out, right, we've got enemies to lovers, Then we've got, you know, friends to lovers. Then we've got faded mates, right? Like, there is a story here about wanting to have sex with someone before you want to be with someone. Which I think is very much how a lot of, you know, modern contemporary romance structures itself. Having said that, my my sexiest part is the throne room part. Mm -hmm. I I love... Slowbird. I loved the little flirtation of the like past magical notes. Um and I would also give a shout out to like everything that happens at the summer court where they kind of tease each other and then they're kind of friends to loversing, you know? I really enjoyed that. But my sexiest part, yep, yeah. is the throne room. I don't mind being edged in a book. I feel like you know towards the benefit of like whatever point I want to make about this book I'll be like it was so different uh from the spring court and it felt like she was reconciling feelings that she had under the mountain um by being in this proxy space uh but really like I just thought it was very hot I thought it was nice how they were slowly losing control of themselves without being sure if that's what was actually happening for the other one. And so they were being very uh tentative while being very like giving too much, you know, and still holding back all the way. I found that to be a very titillating. And I I was listening to You Must Remember This and she was talking about the movie Body Heat. Kathleen Turner. Uh, Mega hottie. Was talking. That was like, yeah, that was like one of her first movies. And it was definitely her first sex scene And she talked about how she got done filming her first sex scene with William Hurt, like on the boat. And it was like very, very, it was either extremely cold yeah, it was extremely cold, but they had to make it look like it was extremely hot weather. And she had this physically intense moment and like years later, she's reflecting on it. And she talks about how she like got done filming and she went into her trailer and cried. And someone was like, did that, the natural follow-up was like, did you feel like you had been violated? And she was like, no, it's just I felt it so intensely. And whenever you're like, physically in your body to portray part of your performance is to be physically in your body like it just makes it so much more intense and Farah goes through a similar thing where at the end when she returns back to the, the the townhouse Reese says I will kill anyone who harms you Reese snarled I will kill them and take a damn long time doing it he panted Go ahead, hate me, despise me for it. Very much tribal tattoo, contemporary romance hero. And Pharaoh replies, you are my friend, I said. And my voice broke on the word. I hated the tears that slipped down my face. I didn't even know I was crying. Perhaps for the fact that it had felt so real on that throne with him, even for a moment. And it likely hadn't been not for him. But that idea of, like, being that controlled... And then having that moment, like even while you're losing control, that creates this moment of release. Like I don't know, the crying afterwards really like pop, popped a shoot punctu- popped an exclamation point
0: on the end of it for me. Favorite is a lot of crying in this book, and she didn't cry a lot in the first. And I think that's really fascinating because she cries in like a couple of different spaces. I think like that's one that's like really moving. And then there's another one where Cassius, who is one of Reason's best friends, uh, is, like, forcing her to spar so that she feels physically strong in her new resurrected Fae body. And she's thinking about the spring court and how disempowered she felt and all of this stuff and, like, the fact that she has to have a conversation with Tamlin, but she doesn't know how to have it and she doesn't want to have it. And she just, like, she feels like her face is wet. And it's because she's, like, doing this physical exertion and she's finally able to unlock part of her feelings about, like, what happened under the mountain. And that reasons friends are able to give her that space so that she can access her deeper emotions physically. And I think that's, like, one of the things that I didn't notice about Favor in the first book, but that she disassociates from her body – and like she she did that when she was hungry. She did that when she was in deprivation. But she also does that in her depression. And it's depicted in this text where she like doesn't eat and she sees herself through recent's eyes and she's like sunken and she's like taking up less space.
1: And doesn't she find out so like in the first book we are told like recent is giving her like booze that makes her like so drunk that she blacks out. Yes. Um, and then don't we find out that it was just, like, regular fairy wine, like, the same that she would have at
0: – Yes.
1: That she had at, like, the festival? It's just she herself was consuming yes. too much of it and dissociating herself.
0: And this book is really good and really subtle at talking about how that disassociation is really harmful and that this book really creates space to create a bridge between Feyre's body And Pharaoh's emotions, which I think is a really important space of healing that this book takes a ton of time to make explicit.
1: I do think like there's something about this book that these these two books together that feels like I feel like there's so much kind of modern contemporary romance trope happening here. That it almost feels like it's pro-contemporary romance and like found family and things. Although I think found family exists in historical. But it does feel like it's charting a movement of like readership preference. Yes. While also, while being both like archetypes for both of those kinds of books at the same time. I think that's right. It forced a lot of self-reflection. And I think in the name of self-reflection weirdest part.
0: God, I mean obviously the class thing is very weird to me. Um, but I like I understand what it was doing. For me it's this the di- the dichotomy of how much sex was presented in this book and then how the sex scenes were presented. Um, they were incredibly hot. I think there's like a lot happening here, but they still felt strangely chased even though they are not because of the wild violent horrific orgies (laughs) and like also the weird sexual violence that is like constantly alluded to in terms of morgan and amarin and the other ethereals um i was really weirded out by that because it was in the first book sexual violence isn't threatened and i didn't realize how nice that was because like the physical violence took up all the air, but then having the second book like be much more interested in how those kinds of assaults break people. Like this book is really interested in soul breakage, where I think the first book was also interested in that, but like interested in it on like a broader scale rather than a personal scale.
1: Sexual violence was always kind of. Pr- present in that first book because she is threatened with sexual violence they send her to clean the fireplace in recent's room assuming he's going to rape her and he doesn't but he is constantly being raped and then we also see like a flashback where the priestess character yeah assault yeah assaults him just like throws herself yeah, guys if if someone doesn't specifically ask for you to be naked in their bed don't just be naked in their bed
0: No, especially if they've said that they hate you and don't trust you. Like, that's not flirting.
1: Being naked in front of someone when they want you to be clothed is not okay. It's assault. Um, And this book understands that.
0: Yes, it does. And is really clear about it.
1: I, I, like, it feels weird to talk about my weirdest part because I feel like there's so much more about this text we haven't touched on, which is, like, the politics of the human world versus the fae world and like how they try to bring in her family and their prejudices prevent it from working out the way they planned yeah but i want to talk about the outfits so while she's in the spring court she's wearing um like big dresses i was picturing amidala dresses i guess i'm very like star wars prequels in this but once she gets to night court, <laughs> she she is given turquoise night clothes, ankle length pants, short sleeved matching shirt, turquoise colored, the hem grazing the top of my navel.
0: Yeah, she's dressed like Jasmine from Aladdin.
1: A hundred percent. She goes from Belle from Beauty and the Beast to Jasmine from Aladdin.
0: It's not an improvement. <laughs>
1: Here's the thing. Aladdin is a movie that is largely critiqued for its Orientalism. Yes. And so, like, if you're going to have that specific reference, you're doing it too. Yes. And, I th- and it's so specific and weird.
0: So weird. It also <laughs> felt like lazy world building. I'm sorry. Like, maybe I'm coming, like, now full circle in the toilets. It's lazy. Because I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, oh, we've gone from big bell hooped dresses to literally jasmine and then when we go to the spring court they're like you should change i'm like that's silly you're all silly she should just be in leathers like katniss like just what are we doing
1: she is for most of the book but like the idea that like <laughs> we have to like really show like how mo- modern, modern and different but still in a fantasy world this is You know, I'd rather wear ankle-length pants and a crop top, sure.
0: Sure, billowing silk chiffon pants over a corset and thousands of layers of taffeta? Absolutely, sign me up. But, like, also, it has to be turquoise? (laughs) Like, come on.
1: But that's the thing. Like, Jasmine is also, like, the cool girl princess.
0: She's not a prize to be won.
1: And she's got a pet tiger. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that like surreptitious cool girl stuff like she's not just because she has like she's secretly taken secretly she didn't do it on purpose but like part of her resurrection is she took on a piece of all of the court kings and is like in so she's technically now the most powerful being in the realm prithian if only she could harness it She's constantly talking about how she's like not as hot as her sisters. Like a lot of that stuff, like for a book that's doing like a lot of commentary on what romance does, it doesn't seem to be that self aware whenever it comes to what romance does to women. I
0: think that's extremely fair because it also like the posse of boys who love and empower her. um, Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That is weird. And the Morrigan is like different
1: cause she like has sex with everybody, but you know, like and how she's distinguished like I assumed Amran was like I pictured her as like Edna from The Incredibles. Mm hmm. And then the Morrigan is like curvy, which we know what that means. hmm. And she's like sexually promiscuous naturally. Because you can't have one without the other. Like, it just seems like that's that's the part that felt like a blind spot. Even though, like, the Morrigan, like, is also, like, mythically powerful. Like, a figure of folklore in folklore. Um, and she's, like, a repeated victim of, like, sexual violence.
0: Yeah, which I hated. And the other thing about it is super weird. Like, no one in the spring court was putting, like, um like a a preciousness on virginity but somehow like the aetherian who are lesser fairies in the night court put a high price on virginity which felt like at odds but also was like oh we're in a renaissancey world obviously women have a lesser place they get their wings clipped in and that felt like a weird kind of commentary about like oh wing clipping is like oh it's like when you're in the rural mountain
1: area. You get your genitals
0: cut, and it's bad. And Reese knows it's bad, so he's good. I Like, that, that, yeah, no, I'm changing my weirdest part. It's definitely the sexual violence, but also how casual it was about, like, the cult of virginity, and then, like, this idea, like, the cult of virginity is bad. It's like, okay, fine, but, like, that feels shoehorned. And then this whole thing about, like, making an allegory of clipping only female wings and making that about, like, female genital mutilation. I was like, boof, we're not doing enough here. Not good.
1: And also, like, they live in, like, the mountains. They're considered, like, rural. Yeah, not good. You know, to go back to your earlier point, like, why not make it something more interesting than a toilet? Like, if you're going to talk about how, like, the world can be a much more expansive place, which I do think is, like, one of the points this book is making... Why is the small, isolated community the least socially progressive by our reader
0: standards?
1: Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to do that? So as you can see, it's not a
0: perfect book. No, it's not. But I shot it back like it was a lemon drop.
1: (laughs) Uh, A green tea shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything else you want to say about the book before final thoughts?
0: I feel so bad because there's so much. Like, I mean, there's the, so it's, much. It's such a tome. We didn't even get into like the Elanthe thing or Tarquin, the super hot summer king. I just, it, you know, maybe we should do the third one just so I can talk more about the second
1: one. <laughs> yeah, Tarquin definitely plays a bigger role in the third
0: book. Oh, God, and we didn't even get into the, like the, like, we found out that there's more to the... A uh, human man general who was the eyeball on amarantha yeah that was great womance or no man's morgan
1: oh god it's a womance are you kidding
0: oh god it's a master class it's,
1: it's it's almost too good
0: never read it
1: <laughs> no it's so like i i've been so disappointed by like book talk books in the past
0: yeah this book is much better than i expected this is not one of those times
1: it's one of those books that like you see how hyped it gets it makes you think it's like not as good like surely some like i think we like it for cooler reasons than a lot of
0: people (laughs) sure i mean i know that for a fact because like i've seen some weird shit on uh social media where like I mean, the fan art around it's pretty cool, but there's some also weird shit about like Valaris and I'm like, "Mm, no, uh, I think, (laughs) think critically about it. Uh, but it is, it is just deeply enjoyable, both as a commentary on romance and as a commentary on all sorts of stuff. I think it is an incredibly smart book even for all of its laziness and faults.
1: This book even more than the last book I feel like is for romance fans.
0: Yes, I would a thousand uh, this doesn't feel like for fantasy fans. I would say this is for romance almost exclusively because
1: Yeah, they even like boink in a cabin in the snow. Are you kidding me? Yeah,
0: I just yeah, it's not it's not high fantasy anymore. We have
1: And then she makes him soup and it's like a symbol in their culture. <laughs>
0: also a symbol to, in my like, culture make somebody
1: fucking soup
0: the offer of food it's soup
1: specific <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure it was soup specific it's the
0: offer of food they have a big party about it when a fated mate accepts their fate yeah. uh accepts their fate is exactly right
1: man fated mates it it just you know but i think like to your point like at first i was like i would have said the fated mates thing was the weirdest part but there's something about jamming in every possible trope into one relationship that I think you have to round out with, the, with a faded mate. Although, like, you're right. That also takes away her, like, real agency and consent.
0: But it also was such a relief. <laughs> yeah. Which says so much about, like conflict like i was i was both dreading and anticipating her conflict with tamlin as soon as i was like oh she and recent are gonna be together how's this gonna go down and i was i was i was dread excited final question for this episode because we can only talk about
1: so much with one book right the toilet womance or no manse
0: No man's for me. I think I've I've been on a real journey with it. Like, I I heard what you had to say. I I think that's a really smart way of looking at it. I think it's a very generous way of looking at it. And if it had been introduced later, I think that would have been better.
1: Would she have needed to have been surprised by the toilet for you to be happy
0: with the toilet's presence? You know me so well. That would have definitely eased me in. If she'd been like... What is this small white
1: monster that roars when you tickle its silver handle?
0: Or we used to have this when my dad didn't fail at investments and now I have to shit out back in a trench. <laughs> like, wow, that would have been fine. a
1: toilet. This place really is nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it can't be like mere presence.
0: No, it can't be. It had to be contextualized come on come on (laughs) Uh,
1: all right well i mean okay it's the toilet is a romance for me
0: i like you know what you deserve that you i get it thank you
1: (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll read the third one i think we should read a halloweeny book first
0: yes i agree with that loosen your stays but never your
1: principles Mwah! Woe Guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance.
0: Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan.
1: And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R E I S C H M A N N
0: N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. If you have an
1: idea or just want to reach out please email womance at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you
0: romance is a part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts until next time